Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please go to acons, A-A-C-O-N-S dot substack dot com. And there you'll find links to our social media platforms, our commentary, this podcast, all of the things, including an option to be able to support our work. So we hope that you will do that. Today, as we record this, it is my birthday. I have been on this earth. 59 years, and I have learned a few things here and there, uh, but today has already been marked special uh, by uh, all the greetings that I've gotten, all the texts that I've gotten. I started off with a song around midnight from DK, which still trying to block that out, but we'll talk about that when he comes on a little bit later. But anyway, uh, I, I've learned a few things that I want to share with you. And so the the first and biggest, well, obviously the first and biggest one is to love God. If you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with God, that has been the greatest blessing of my life. If you were to know me before I became a Christian, you would not believe the before and after picture. It is startling. And my husband and I were talking about that the other night. So that is number one. That is the biggest thing I think that I could impart to you if I could. The other is to love your mother, whether it is a foster mother, a caregiver, a grandmother, whoever that mother figure is in your life, love her. I have three children two of whom we adopted, one who is ours biologically. I have one waiting for us in heaven. And I have two kids that lived with us uh, when we lived in California. They were uh, kids that went to church with us and they moved in when they were in their teens and lived with us for uh, varying lengths of time. And we consider them our kids. So I've heard from them today and from their children that I consider my grandchildren. So it has been a fabulous day. And I have felt feted and celebrated today in ways that I can't even describe. My oldest took us all out to dinner last night. He paid for it. And the celebrations keep coming. Um, but if you have a female figure in your life, please love her and let her know how much you love her. My mother has gone on now. Um, and there are so many things, you know, that I understand now that I didn't. Um, and now I'm going to get a little teary about that. Uh, and so uh, definitely make sure that your your mother or the female figure in your life knows the influence that she's had on you and how profound her impact has been on you. And that is the message that I received loud and clear today from my kids and my grandkids. Um, and so I <clears throat> truly appreciate all of that love. And I think when you're in the moment of parenting, it's always chaotic, always, where's your socks? Let's go with this, da, 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 da. you know, and you don't really think about the long-term impact of, of your day-to-day. -day. When you get to be 59 and, uh, you know, you see that day coming uh, and you start to get a little reflective, you start to see, okay, you know, I, I remember some 
days that were not the greatest. Um, and I thought that I had messed things up and I, you know, screwed my kid up for life or whatever it is. But when you look back at the big picture, you know, the jigsaw puzzle that's completed, uh, you realize that you have made a huge difference just by showing up every day and giving that love. And that's not to say that fathers are not important because that is the other lesson. I grew up without my dad. Um, if you've been watching some of the podcasts that Alan West has been doing lately, alanwest.substack.com, um, he's been talking to Adam B. Coleman about fatherlessness. He's talked to a number of other guests about the issue of fatherlessness um, and how it's impacted us. I grew up without a father. It definitely impacted me. Um, but watching my husband of 33 years with our children, including the ones from California and their kids, now as a Lolo, a grandfather. Uh, it's been interesting to see that um, evolution. He's He was always good material to work with, you know, to begin with, but to see him day after day after day put in the time uh, working and also just spending time with them at great cost to himself. You know, um, there are things that he's needed to do that he's put on the burner because he shows up every day for those kids um, and invests in them and spiritually invests in them. Uh, we have reaped uh, spiritual dividends from all of our kids and seen how they are on a path for the Lord. And that's really the greatest thing that I can honestly say um, in these 59 years is that my kids know the Lord. And that is the absolute most precious gift that you could ever give me. So I wanted to share those things with you today uh, on what is a special day, probably not the day that you see this, but those are the things that are on my heart. And uh, I just wanted to share that with you. Love God, love your mom, love your dad, um, and love others. It's sometimes hard when people do you wrong and you want to lash out. And that old girl, the one that's dead, the one that you wouldn't recognize, um, would have done that, perhaps. Uh, this girl uh, might grumble a bit, but I try to, try to, okay, DK can call me out on this, but only DK. He can call me out on this and say I may not always muzzle up, but I try. Uh, but yeah, be a good friend too. So love your mom. But love God, love your mom, love your dad, love your community and the people around you. Just sum it up in one word, love. And that's my gift to you on this 59th birthday for me. Wilfred Riley is a, an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University. His research interests include international relations, contemporary American race relations, and the use of modern quantitative and empirical methods to test sacred cow theories. He is the author of The Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, The $50 Million Question, an Engagingly Empirical Examination of the Relationship Between Privilege and Pride, and also the book Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About. Welcome back to the show. Glad, glad to be here. So one of the topics that you take on is interracial crime. As you point out, quote, the mass media are to an extraordinary degree responsible for the widespread false belief that interracial crimes are one, at all common, and two, majority white on black. 
many journalists, indeed publications, I see you the root, seem hmm. to devote themselves almost entirely to using questionable stories of racism to fan the flames of controversy in America, end quote. What then is the motivation for this racial uh, flame fanning? Is it financial just for clicks? Is there another agenda being pushed? I think it's both. I mean, one of the things we forget about the media is that uh, media is a for-profit business. I mean, when you see Don Lemon or for that matter, one of the Fox or OAN hosts sitting there looking very dignified in a thousand dollar Brooks Brothers suit, I mean, it's easy to think that you're watching sort of an almost academic enterprise and then they cut to, you know, the ad for Ford trucks or, you know, men's sexual enhancement pills and you realize what the what the goal of the business is to some extent. It's to draw in eyes so you can sell products to your advertisers. And I have a lot of friends that work in corporate television on right and left, and that is that is never forgotten in the, in the leadership meetings. So, I mean, I, I think that to a certain extent, People know that certain things, you know, lovely blonde woman beaten or kidnapped, you know, political scandal, preferably involving sex or money. And yeah, ethnic conflict sell really well. So those are things that are often pitched to the audience. I think that's that's part of it. Another element that can't be ignored, though, is that the American media right now leans really, really far to the political left to a crazy extent. And. That, that does shape what's called the narrative, I think, here. So there, there are two elements. One, media in the USA in general runs a lot of interracial crime, interracial conflict stories. But a second element of this is that most of them are presented in this frame where white people are constantly attacking sort of innocent black people. So over the past couple of days, we've seen this, uh, correct me if I get the name wrong, but I think it's Ralph Yarl's story. That's this poor kid who went uh, to a homeowner's door looking for his little brother who was, I guess, wandering in the neighborhood. He was trying to pick him up and he was shot through the door by this guy. He was a much older man who might have dementia or something. And the New York Times has so far run seven stories on this case. And this kind of coverage is very common from MSNBC, CNN, so on down the line. And as a result, a lot of a lot of African-Americans, especially young black men, younger brothers, think that there is this constant episodic violence against black people. The Skeptic Research Center, a well-known kind of libertarian think tank, uh, ran a poll a couple of years back where they asked African-Americans and young white liberals in cities how many people, how many unarmed black men specifically they thought were killed annually by the police. And as I recall, 35% of them thought the figure was about a thousand, specifically unarmed, specifically black men. Um, another 14 to 15% thought it was about 10,000. And maybe 8% thought it was more than that. And the year when the poll took place, the number of unarmed black people killed by the police, unarmed black men, was about 11. So you have, not only do you have the, the focus on this for clicks, I think you also have a press that really slants in one direction politically, 93% uh, not to the right, according to Pew Research to get wonky, promoting the idea that these these cases, these stories really go in one direction. And that's, we'll probably get to the data here, but that's just fantastically untrue. There's not a lot of interracial crime. 
And if anything, it goes in the other direction. There, there's substantially more black on white violence than there is white on black violence. In Taboo, you write about what you call the continuing oppression narrative or con. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, so the continuing oppression narrative and actually a, a final point about if I can about the, the interracial crime stats. I mean, in terms of how rare the serious interracial violence is, I mean, there, there's an annual report on crime. It's uh, the BJS NCVS report, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, National Crime Victimization Report. And in a typical year, America is a pretty uh, high crime country. So there are 12 to 20 million serious, uh, we call them index crimes. Of those, generally maybe 600,000, so three to 5%, are violent crimes involving either a black perp and a white vic or a white victim and a, a black perpetrator. And of that tiny subset, the last I looked, which was 2018, 2019, a little over 80% are black on white. There are more whites. There are about five times as many white people and they have more money. So if we're going to talk about this, this sideline issue at all, it's a little odd that it's black radicals that keep bringing it up. I mean, that might be one group that would, if anything, want to minimize it. So that's, that's I mean, that's pretty much the, the detail there. That's not one of the bigger issues in society. And it, it really doesn't cut in the, the direction of Mr. Yarl. But so in terms of the the CON, the CO, the continuing oppression narrative, and obviously, you know, I, I picked an acronym there with some potential humor value, but the the CON is the idea that old school racism or some modern variant on it, like uh, cultural appropriation, white privilege, systemic racism, the gays, subtle bigotry. I think everyone in this calls read the papers kind of but is, is still very pervasive in American society. And this explains most of the problems that we see in black communities and other minority communities, and most of the gaps that we see between minorities and whites. And this is a really prevalent idea. So in the book, and I also, I take on kind of the idea of probably the only curse word I'll use during the show, but the book takes on contemporary bullshit. That's the point of the book. But because of the direction I think a lot of it goes in, the first five or six chapters of the book look at what I consider the CON. So like, is there an epidemic of police violence against totally innocent young black men is chapter one or young black people. Chapter two is, is there an epidemic of interracial crime, whether that's white on black or black on white? And I actually look at this data and I find out first, no. And two, if there's a problem here at all, it's kind of with us, but there's, there's not a problem here at all. And, you know, chapter three, I go into some of the broader issues here. Like when you adjust for things like age, region, test scores, does the systemic racism narrative hold up? Like, does there seem to be a lot of subtle bias within systems? So as a black guy with the same test scores, is it harder to get into business school or to get hired by a solid F500 company and it is as the same white guy, not just is a white guy more likely to be hired than a black guy, but are similar black guys disadvantaged relative to similar white guys, which is surprisingly rarely asked. And obviously, I find the answer is no. If anything, I mean, most companies have an affirmative action program in place at this point. 
you know, in chapter four, you get into fatherlessness. What are some actual explanations for this? Why or what are the real problems in black communities? And by the way, working class white communities, native communities, which seem to have more of these these pathologies, if you will, than than anyone else right now. So the C-O-N is this idea that the old school racial conflicts of the past are still the sole thing that explains problems for black Americans in particular today. And to make this argument, you have to do three things. You have to ignore the fact that most of these problems did not exist in the past. There, there wasn't an epidemic of teen mothers in the African-American South in 1940, whatever other no. problems going on, yeah. whatever conflict between blacks and whites, whatever abuse of older black people. I mean, the, this idea that people were regularly having kids at 14, it wasn't true. Two, you have to ignore the success of immigrants who are almost all minorities. So people come here from Jamaica, Korea, you don't want to make jokes like floating on doors, but I mean, Cuba all the time and become very, very successful. This is every small business in most mid-sized towns. None of the same problems exist that seem to exist for, and this leads into point three, many working class black and white people. So why is that? Why does racism not hold back, say, Indian Americans, the richest group in the country? Many of them far more dark-skinned than either of us. I mean, if they're coming from the Dravidian South. And three, why do the same problems exist for so many white people? I mean, the illegitimacy rate, fatherlessness rate, if you prefer, for Caucasians is at 36% right now. So to, to claim that this, this one thing, this one variable of racial prejudice or racial conflict causes all of the problems we see, which is the claim of, for example, Dr. Ibram Kendi, occasional online sparring partner of mine, that just ignores all of these other issues. It doesn't explain anything that I just said. So I, I gave that narrative a name and I said, well, we kind of need to move past this because this doesn't make any sense. It kind of makes us sound dumb when you hear people saying this, when you hear people pointing at SAT score gaps. So like, OK, we're still more than 100 points behind the white average, but Asians are beating everyone by hundreds of points. I mean, the average Asian SAT is 1239. It's almost 1250. The average for the country is 1000. So to say that that's due to anti-Black racism, it, it doesn't make any sense. So I, I call that out at, at book length. Available on you, know, <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that, though, because we've talked about that here on the show a little bit, um, that, you know, maybe there was a time when you needed affirmative action because you needed a level playing field or whatever, but there's no school in the country that you could apply to where they're not going to give you preference. Now, I mean, it's bent so far the other way that it's almost racist or it is racist against people who are white and Asian. Um, and these people that have the, the grades that you're talking about um, just on uh, because we want this diversity quota and not looking at, is this someone who can uh, handle the rigor? of a four-year university or whatever it is. And I'm not saying that we can't because we can, um, but I'm just saying to dumb down these tests and all of those kinds of things, that to me is soft bigotry that, you know, you've got to dumb down your tests so that I can get in. Um, but those things kind of don't occur anymore. We don't need that level playing field. In fact, we need to put some of the dirt back and make it level for everyone to play on the field and not just people of color. And to your point about um, immigrants, one of the things that DK and I had been talking about was that, you know, one thing that seems to be 
missing. One ingredient is that a lot of families who travel here from other countries do so in a block and they pool all of their resources. They have extended childcare because there's usually a grandparent or an older caregiver that can watch the kids so that both parents can work and those sorts of things that we don't have anymore. I mean, mentioned that I'm 59 today. Uh, you know, the, the era that I grew up in, you know, there were a lot of older people that um, had their own businesses. We had black communities that were thriving, but um, there was extended childcare. There were multi-generational families that all helped. Um, and that's something that we don't do anymore. You see families kind of like in their own island, their own oasis without those sorts of helps. And so it takes longer for them to accrue the money to get a down payment on a house or whatever it might be, because they don't have those built-in supports that we used to see as a community. Yeah, I, I think that that's deep on a level beyond some of the racial stuff. Like I had this oh, conversation yeah. on Twitter that's and cultural. Facebook. I mean, yeah, societal. Yeah, but no, I mean, like I had this conversation on Twitter and Facebook like yesterday with some of my buddies from back home in Chicago and East Aurora who are mostly Hispanic and Irish. And it was exactly the same thing because I, I said some kind of whingy young professional thing, like it's hard to live the American dream these days. And everyone was like, yeah, you can live the American dream almost anywhere except for the wealthy neighborhoods of like 10 cities, which is where I suspect you want to do it, Riley. But I mean, like you could come back home to the old neighborhood. I mean, there are 10 houses for sale right now. The problem is that a lot of these blocks aren't occupied in black, Hispanic, Irish, Eastern European neighborhoods. We need more people here. You know, you could go to like in Louisville, the largest city in your new state. I mean, you, the house is $200,000. You could go almost anywhere. I mean, you could go to any of these half abandoned towns of like 50,000 people around the country. How do you get childcare? You pay the neighbor girl $20. You don't send your grandmother to a home. She lives with you and you put up with that relative that you're supposed to love. So all of these ideas about life is so difficult. It's hard for couples to start out on their own. You can't afford children. What people, that whole framework assumes a certain lifestyle. Like you want a house with two cars. Yeah. You want the ability to sort of divorce almost at will. You want mom and dad both working at these kind of boutique upper middle class jobs. If like one parent just stays home and takes care of the house and another one has a regular job and you just live in a blue collar community, like there, there are millions of people doing that all around the country. Just look at the South. So I, I do think that there's a, there's a major difference between what the kind of upper middle class taste making group views as mandatory and what everyone else just kind of does. And I, I think that's an extremely good point when you were like, I mean, my, my friends just said that. I just repeated it. When you're like, childcare was just your relatives. That's that's absolutely accurate. We saw this under COVID to some extent. Yeah, yeah. Where like, I mean, I remember the New York Times ran this message on its front page that was full of these COVID suggestions. And some were reasonable enough, like if you're sick, wear a mask in public. But one of them was if you can have food delivered to your door so you don't endanger anyone and no one has to go outside. And it was like, as a, as a blue collar kid, like, how do you think the food yeah. gets there? Like, yeah. how do you, you don't, you don't yeah. think the chef's in a kitchen? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't, you don't think that I the delivery me. guy is yeah. driving a car? With, I mean, what are you talking about? It was just right. the most isolated, like fairies bring it to your door yeah. was kind of the take. So, I mean, most people I know who were blue collar, not even blue collar, just normal people, like like horse yeah. grooms here or like road crew guys back in, back in Chicago. Nobody locked down at all under COVID because all something like half of all jobs were essential. 
And so their wives didn't bother to either. I mean, they went out shopping and so on because they, they were being exposed as it was. So probably 80% of the population just continued living their normal lives. And you had this one select group of people that was panicking and screaming and wearing three masks and that's still doing that now. Like the better prep schools in most cities are still eating lunch outside and so on. And this could go on for another two or three years. But the rest of society, like minority communities, quote unquote, redneck communities, blue collar communities, people are just totally ignoring this. And I think you're seeing that dichotomy more and more when it comes to a ton of things from sex to military service, like a ton of screaming like up here and then everyone else just kind of going on and living life. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Now, um, recently, uh, Riley Gaines was punched by a trans activist mob at San Francisco State, my regretfully my alma mater, um, for not long after uh, the U.S. Uh, Circuit Court Judge uh, Kyle Duncan was threatened with an assault on his daughter before a speech at Stanford Law. Uh, we've even had prominent uh, academics decline to discuss his work with us because he was intimidated by the controversy it was provoking. Have there been any, has there been any blowback from your book, Taboo, or from your other writings at your university? Well, a couple of things there. I mean, when you mentioned the birthday and congrats, by the way, Thank I you. mean, uh, SF State must have been a fun place to go to in the 70s and 80s. <laughs> I can Not a lot of childlike innocence on the campus, probably. But um, <laughs> the, and shout to RG. Uh, Riley Gaines is a casual friend to some of my friends. She was a UK Oh, she's swimmer. a friend of mine as well. Yeah, yeah she's amazing. Me. Yeah, she's, she's a cool person. But um, there are a couple of things there. I mean, so no, I haven't gotten any backlash like that. Uh, I also haven't gone to San Francisco to give a speech about how racism isn't the root of current black problems or how uh, white radicals like 90% of that city also need to get up and get a job. I mean, I haven't done anything <laughs> wildly controversial to, to irritate that demographic yet. And I think that, again, makes this point like the 80-20 principle that we just talked about. Most people are pretty normal. So, I mean, Kentucky State is a top 200 or so nationally black run college in Appalachia. So there's a limit to how much we can really whine in either direction. I mean, in terms of like, you know, the white man holding us down, everyone running the campus is a black millionaire. You know, so it's just, it is what it is. Um, and on the other direction, in terms of white privilege and the like, I mean, central Kentucky is not the most privileged region in the world. So you don't really get a whole, it might be the least, at least in the first world. So you don't really get a lot of back and forth racial sparring. And I mean, the reaction I got to my book from a mixed group of white and black guys playing golf was just sort of like, hell, good thing you have tenure. Ha ha. I mean, from friends of mine, it was <laughs> friendly stuff, you know, was, uh, I'm sure there was an element of truth <laughs> under the banter. But there was no, I haven't been picketed or anything like that. And I think in 90% of the country, this is the kind of reaction that you would get. Again, so kind of man bites dog makes the news, like the crazy mob of blue haired students <laughs> attacking a swimmer from kind of the, the free USA portion like Riley is, is going to get featured. I mean, me giving a speech and students asking polite questions is not. Um, I do think I probably will do some of the Matt Walsh style campus tours where in addition to trying to, you know, book a West Point or something like that, I also will go to like the Claremont colleges and so on and see what happens. But we we haven't done that yet. Uh, you know, shout to Riley for standing up pretty well, un very well under that. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, and the I think, think she could have taken two or three of them. But I mean, there was a whole mob of them like dancing down all of beating on buckets and so on. 
I also will say, like, the trans thing to me is insane, not just in the sense of, you know, gender dysphoria as a DSM-5 mental diagnosis and so on, but in right. terms of the almost classic misogyny of it, like stripped of the yeah. fancy liberal language, what the Kill Turfs movement is, is a bunch of men beating up women and... Yes you know, saying things that are just classic male violence, like get on your knees for the new ladies, you know, like it, and it's totally ignored or cheered because the idea is that these women belong to an even more marginalized group than the sort of women classic that they're attacking, <laughs> physically beating up. And it's just, if you haven't gone through the looking glass, like if you haven't accepted certain, in my opinion, nonsensical claims about reality, the whole thing is beyond ludicrous. But for people that have, I mean, the 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 dynamic is that these brave, oppressed people are standing up against, you know, upper middle class, blonde, female oppressors. So it, it really is just one of those examples of conflicting narratives. But the the reality is that one of the narratives is nonsensical. Like in reality, Riley was you know punched in the head a couple of times by a man in a dress. Yeah, so that was, absolutely. That that's, yeah, that's crazy. And when you see uh, some of the things that are being said about, you know, well, trans people have rights and and um, these people are seeking to uh, take away those rights. And Riley, rightly, yesterday on Twitter was like, huh, people trying to take away other people's rights. Why <laughs> does that sound familiar? People, it's like you were saying to our last uh, conversation that we just had, um, the the tone deafness, I guess, that people engage in and they don't really see the hypocrisy of what they're saying. They're not getting that women have been a class of people that needed Title IX to be able to, to compete and that they get scholarships for these things and, you know, athletic records that are being erased by the day. And that doesn't cause concern for this group of, you know, like 1% of people, if that. And as you said, there is, uh, it is still currently in the DSM-5, that's probably going to change, but it is currently still there as a mental illness. So this whole thing that I've been hearing on the radio, uh, I've been having to monitor a, a lot of hearings in the house and, and, and that kind of stuff. And when I'm hearing people say that, you know, oh, well, they were told that if they didn't transition their kids, you know, it's better to have uh, a, a, a live son than a dead, yeah, than it. And I'm just like, okay, now, wait a minute. You're making this correlation of suicidality with a group of people that already is experiencing mental illness. And so when you yes, are talking about mental illness, automatically suicidality has a higher instance in this group than in other groups already. So I'm not saying, I mean, any life is a life uh, the, the cut short tragically if someone commits suicide. But I'm just saying that seems like such a weak argument to make when you're talking about a group and just changing your body parts in many cases hasn't fixed the problem. And it's because they haven't addressed the root problem, which is the mental illness, not the body uh, parts, if you will. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's correct. So, like, first of all, obviously, and I'll just say this bluntly in a pretty major podcast, like, obviously, believing that you're the opposite sex is a mental illness. Like, I don't I don't have any hate for you, but that's just it's an mm. obvious statement of fact. And I mean, the scientific academies in China, Arabia, India, Russia, so on down the line. I mean, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, for that matter, Finland, so on. People are moving back toward this position. The first players I mentioned have never left this position. Um, this, this wasn't the most coherent statement, but all of those entities pretty much recognize what I just said. So when people say something like every organization supports preteen gender affirming care or something like this, that's obviously a nonsensically selected statement. I mean, they're referring to eight or 10 agencies within the rapidly liberalizing Western world. If you were to ask someone what a powerful ally that's extremely good at science, like the Indians thinks about this, they would immediately redirect the conversation like no more would be said. What do they think about this in Nigeria? You know, Africa's leading scientific power, South Africa. Well, I don't know. I mean, so clearly the, the basic idea that you can change your sex or that you are the sex that you are not. I mean, sex is a very simple, uh, it's a gametic matter. So like, a woman is an adult member of the sex associated with the production of large and valuable gametes to wonk out, known as eggs. Men produce more, smaller, more motile gametes. That's what sperm are. I mean, you know, at K-State or UK, we have some of the better biologists that work with large animals probably in the world. This is horse breeding country. And it's not hard to tell a stallion from what a mare you know, so yeah. this is something we literally do with all animals. I mean, there are biologists on those two campuses that sex bears, you know, pedigreed cattle, so on down the line. So believing you can cross this binary and be something else is an odd sort of belief to have. I'll politely put it like that. This is somewhat complicated with the whole idea of gender. But when you actually start trying to unpack gender, what you basically just get into is a bunch of unscientific, anti-feminist stereotypes. So if someone says, well, I don't say that I'm a woman in sexual terms, I say that I'm a woman in gender terms, you then get to kind of the Matt Walsh question, what does that mean? Yeah. And you generally, what you find is that people are saying things like, well, I like the color pink, you know, <laughs> I have long hair, I prefer male lovers. And I'm not the, I don't identify as a male feminist, the joke is because I'm not a creep, but I mean, it it really doesn't make a ton of sense. Like that that's not what makes you a woman. And so you get back to the original question of, well, why do you think you are? Why do you want to change your body parts? And that's that's what originally put the diagnosis in the DSM, as as I understand, exactly. not a psychologist. So but I mean, all this is a is a bit distinct from the uh the suicidality point. But yeah, I mean Suicide is really associated with many mental illnesses. Yeah, and my understanding, in fact, more than my understanding, like I read this study two days ago. If you adjust for the other mental conditions that people who have gender dysphoria have, there's no difference in suicidality between people who have gender dysphoria and other people. The problem is that there's an underlying mental condition, like first GD itself, and then all of these other mental conditions that are almost invariably associated with it. So you're, the goal ideally, in my opinion, would be to treat the underlying issues and see if you could reduce the risk of suicide. It's, it's really yeah. rare. 
really rare with mental conditions to just kind of do what the patient says. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like you, the, the classic example in kind of online exchanges, you don't give anorexics diet pills. But that's sort of what we're doing here. Like the U.S. and British policy is affirmation, Canadian policy with um, people even under 18 who ID as trans. So if someone says, well, I think I'm a girl, you start this treatment track where it's like, okay, assuming you pass a few very basic tests, what do you need to do to feel more like a girl? And last sentence on this, but my horrible suspicion would be that Suicide is linked in part to being trans because if you actually have gender dysphoria, part of that is recognizing that you're never going to be the sex that you want to be. Like, if you're a man, you can't be a woman. There are all these differences. You have these giant hands. You have an Adam's apple. The surgery to shave that down is very painful, takes a lot of time and money. I mean, you have a prostate gland. I mean, they're just so many easily discoverable things. You're very likely going to notice that during, let's say, intimacy. Every year after 40, you're going to have to go to the doctor and they're going to tell you about its condition. And you're going to have to drink all these serums and all this other stuff to keep it at a reasonable size. You're never going to be able to dodge that fact as a quote unquote trans woman. I mean, so that that conflict between perception and reality is very likely linked to the suicide risk here. So, it, I mean, there's a famous uh, Swedish, I believe, study of trans individuals that finds that suicide risk, and this is this has really been shelved. This is almost totally taboo in the social sciences to cite, but suicide risk for people who are trans or who identify as trans is actually highest about 10 years after transition. So, the, the worry would be that if you start transitioning people, you're going to see an increase, not a decrease in suicide, as more and more people move into this very high suicide category. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't see why more people haven't mentioned that. It seems kind of intuitively obvious, but we'll, we'll see. Hopefully that's wrong. You know, and the really interesting thing about it, too, is like you said, it's not just body parts. You know, it's the hard wiring. And there's no surgery that I'm aware of that can fix that. Um, you know, there are certain things that women are hardwired to do, um, you know, in, in respect to attending children um, and those sorts of things. I mean, there's just some things that are hard wired into our our way of being. And so it's kind of crazy to think that just putting on a dress fixes that, um, you know, or, or, or taking some pills is going to address any of that. It just, you know, um, you might change your voice, you might get some facial hair, but it doesn't address the underlining hard wiring um, that makes us different. So I, I don't know. It's going to be a complex issue. But to your point, you know, some of the testimony that I've been hearing um, has been from people who have moved into middle age now that were some of the very first people in the 80s to do this and have said, oh, well, I have entered menopause now and my body is completely different. Um, and so when I go to the doctor, I have to do this, but my body is this. And, you know, it, to your point, and it's like the, these doctors don't quite know what to do because it's like, well, but you've got this, but I have to treat you this way. Um, And so they're not getting the care that they need. And some of these surgeries um, have caused some issues within the body that cannot be corrected because we don't have 
the the means to do it. So yeah, it's a really thorny thing. And I think now we're going to see, you know, instead of uh, Camp Lejeune or mesothelioma commercials, you know, 30 years from now, we're going to see all these people that oh, yeah. were on puberty blockers and cross hormones and all that kind of stuff, because, you know, like you said, the empirical data isn't quite there yet. So. Yeah, one hundred percent. I actually, I actually think that that's going to be the thing that stops this in about ten years. Like some red state is going to pass a law saying within the boundaries of Florida, you can sue for ineffective transgender medical care or something like that, and it's a wrap. Like, I mean, the first twenty million dollar case against the doctor—that's it for this stuff. Either um, you know, pre-pubertal through under eighteen, or overall. I mean, and I can just imagine like a jury of I would pick primarily business women. I trained as a lawyer, but like listening to this stuff, like then my clitoris was removed and they they took out the nerves underneath it. Let's discuss how the labia are sliced away to create. I mean, I don't really want to talk about it, but I mean, it's just like <laughs> the the male version is even more graphic. I mean, it's <laughs> you, essentially you take the penis and you turn it inside out. It's there's a version of this surgery that was used. And I, I don't want to mock people that have right. what is a, you know, if, if you're at any rate, you basically you, you perform a version of the surgery that is used to create eunuchs to re remove your testicles and you take your penis, let's say PG 13 and you turn it inside out and you create an artificial vagina. And I think the first time someone can say any version of this was done on me before I was 18 or any version of this was done on me imperfectly hair grew inside me or something like that. I mean, that's, there's going to be a massive financial settlement and we're going to see some changes in the law. The same stuff with the, and this is a much larger end problem. I mean, the same stuff with the puberty blockers, hormones and so on for young people, which is in practice, the large majority of what's happening with kids. I mean, there aren't really a lot of kids that are getting um, quote unquote bottom surgeries and so on on but i mean like the stuff that people are taking to do this is it, these have generally been considered pretty hard drugs like pure yeah. testosterone is just tea from the gym like all those steroids like diazabol and so on that most competent athletes including me opted not to take in high school that's yeah. pretty much what's being done here like you can go to planned parenthood and if you're over 18 as i understand in almost every state 48 plus 48 you can get doses of testosterone or estrogen and you basically inject those i would assume like you go home and you start taking them so there's massive uncontrolled consumption of these pretty powerful steroids and it's it's a weird thing that's allowed because of the claim well this is treatment for this this medical condition essentially so all of this is this weird kind of unregulated space right now and you're right a couple of decades down the road there's no way we're going to be looking back on this. There is a 0% chance we're going to be looking back on this and saying, yes, giving gym level testosterone or puberty blockers to 10 year old kids was a good idea. Like that's <laughs> not going to happen. This is, this is almost certainly going to be viewed the way we view lobotomy now. Absolutely right. If you're just joining us, our guest this segment has been Wilfred Riley. How can our listeners follow you online and continue to follow your work? I'm, a, I'm pretty easy to find on the interwebs. Uh, the easiest way to find me is just to Google Wilfred Riley. Um, it's W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y. 
And you'll find my webpage, although that is a mere offshoot of Kentucky State University, but my Twitter, uh, my books on Amazon and my author page, feel free to follow me there. I occasionally say things. My Facebook, if you want to see pictures of food I cook, all that kind of thing. Um, I'm at that sort of very low level of fame where I'll still engage and argue with you. And I look look forward to talking to people. <laughs> well, thank you for coming back to the show. Yeah, yeah, glad to be here. And this is the part of the show where we bring in DK. DK, come on in. Hey, how are you? Thank you for calling to serenade me at midnight. <laughs> that was a great interview. You know, I'm a big Wilful Riley fan. You yeah, know, I, we are. I read his books. I follow his Twitter thread. I follow yeah, his Yeah, he's columns. pretty funny on Twitter. Well, he's funny in real life. I mean, as yeah. you saw, but yeah. I think he's doing like an online class on Thomas Sowell. I can't wait to take that. He's... He's uh, someone I really uh, look up to. So I'm glad, always glad to have him on the show. Yeah. I wanna, so what are you going to talk to me about today? I came across this great video I want to show you. I just want okay. to take a second. You're so funny. <laughs> but you have to sing it for us. It won't work if you don't sing it for us. not quite the same as you singing it at midnight. Did I mention that was midnight that when you called? Yeah. The <laughs> second time. A, the first time was midnight your time. Then I think got, you called midnight my time. <laughs> so I got to hear it twice. When it got to Quanto Angles Tiny, I knew it was time to end it. <laughs> you don't want to talk about that. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about something else about the the riot that happened in Chicago Saturday, where these youths, they had a meetup in like the downtown Chicago area. Um, there was uh, vandalism, looting, I think. Uh, stores, I mean, uh, cars were destroyed, set on fire. You saw videos of teens standing on top of cars, deliberately destroying cars. A couple of passerbys were assaulted. Um, there were even... Um, Two of, two of the teens got shot, so there was gunfire. And not only did it seem really sad to me, but it was it also seemed to be part of a, a nationwide trend of, of the youth, especially in our community, are becoming completely out of control. You know, we see these stories like from Walmart. They're closing stores in places like Chicago and San Francisco. And I know a lot of that is because we don't have a great economy and a lot of our economy is moving to be an online economy. So you don't really need these huge um, brick and mortar stores as much, but a lot of it is due to crime and looting. And Walmart says that, you know, you still, still a certain amount, you know, they can't afford to stay open because they try to keep their profit margins very thin. And they also see stories like from Chick-fil-A now in certain states are, 
requiring that their customers be over 16 so high school kids can't go there and hang out anymore because the behavior of these high school kids have gotten so bad. There's a mall in New Jersey that's pretty much said the same thing, that if you're not over 16 and not in the company of an adult, um, you're no longer able to you know, shop and hang out. I mean, what what kid? Can you imagine being a high school kid and not wanting to hang out at a Chick-fil-A or at the local mall? And now that's taken care of. They have stores specifically in the mall for 16-year-olds to go hang out without their parents, yeah. you know, video, video game stores. And I don't know what they had when you were a teenager, but... Oh, stop. When, you know, <laughs> <when I> was, <laughs> You're 11 when I, months younger than I am. When so. I was a teenager, they had, like, Dave uh, <laughs> & Buster's and whatever. You play video games. You had to put a roller quarter on your space I don't think Dave or Buster was even <laughs> born when you were a kid. You know, you put a get a roller quarter, you put it on the Space Invaders game. See, that I told you right there, roller quarters. <laughs> I to tell you how old you are. So, <laughs> Space Invaders, oh come on. So, but yeah, but you know, the, the interesting thing about all of that is, you know, where are the parents in this? You know, even working parents, and I have, and as I mentioned in the monologue, I am the product of a single parent, and my mom was at the school board meetings. My mom was very involved um, with certain aspects of school. There are other parts where maybe I wish that she had been a little more involved, but um, to her credit, she did as much, I think, as she could, or I don't know. I mean, you, you know that I had some issues with anxiety growing up, and so there were some areas where I think maybe a little more could have been done in that aspect, but Again, single mom, went to school, did that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I, I hate this whole sort of stereotype that, you know, oh, well, we're so stupid. We need to have our tests dumbed down so that we can go to school. Um, and now it's, you know, well, our parents, somebody told me, somebody actually told me when I used to blog about homeschooling my children, it was, well, you know, most black moms just want their kids to get out of high school without a teen pregnancy or being in a gang. I think every parent wants that. I don't think it's just black parents. I think every parent wants that. And if that's so, that's a pretty low bar. I feel like, I'm not saying that those aren't difficulties. I mean, when you walk through gang territory every day and your kid's being recruited uh, or trying, they're trying to recruit your kids. I get that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you need to be an involved parent. Don't just say, oh, because I'm poor and I'm black and I work three jobs, you can't be a good parent. There's There was a, a video of this woman who, um, now she was white, but I mean, there, there are videos of, of black parents who do this too, where this uh, kid had uh, taken her car for a joyride. He was like, you know, really young. He was like 13, 14 years old. He wasn't even old enough for a license. Took her car, went joyriding. She found him on the side of the road and pulled and started whapping him right there on the road. I mean, I'm not advocating for child abuse in any sort of way, but I'm just saying, you know, it, there's that woman in one of the iconic videos. I can't remember if it was Freddie Gray or one of those things, but she saw her kid looting and rioting. She went down there and she said, boy, I better never see you and whack, whack, whack. I and I'm saying that, we need more video. parents that are like, this is not going to happen. Because as I said in the monologue at the top of the hour, you know, it says that your reputation you know, when I was talking about the Bible, your reputation is like gold. And so if you're out there looting and rioting, and I've told you this, I've repeated it here a number of times on the podcast, the conversation I had with my cousin, he was like, well, don't you care that your boys are black? They could get out there and they could get shot. And I'm like, you know, 
you don't think that having being on the the television day after day after day after day where they speak, see people that look like us carrying out plasma TVs and carrying out bags and bags and bags of you know Jordans and Nike's and whatever else you know um and and that doesn't inspire people to be racist against us and then you wonder why you know if your name is ethnic sounding and you get passed over um when they're hiring because you know you get angry and oh i i guess i'm going to shut this place down you know you you get a reputation for that and then you wonder oh well it's white privilege and it's this and it's that and then you got white people kneeling down bowing to you at, right after that it's crazy it's insane and so i just think that we just need Need to go back to some parenting. We need to go back to, you know, spending time with your family, doing all of these things, instilling some morals and some values into your kid. That's not the way we behave ourselves. If if you are the if you experience racism, and a lot of us have, if you experience racism, the answer to that is not to go to your local Walmart or CVS and you know, go, okay, well, you can't prosecute me if I, you know, steal under $150, I mean, $950 worth of stuff. Some is still, you know, nine, uh, uh, $849 worth of stuff or $949 worth of stuff. That's not the answer. You didn't stick it to the man. You, you know, you didn't really do anything. So I feel like, you know, these are false narratives and it's just painting us to look bad. We look like uh, the animals that they they uh, paint us to be, uh, just living on these brute urges. And that's not who we are as a people. That's not what got us through slavery. That's not what got us through Jim Crow. That's not what got us through civil rights. Um, but here we are. And, you know, I think that you owe me $5 million and a plasma TV because my great, 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 great grandmother was a slave. You know, and I'm biracial. So, do what I'm what I'm entitled to get canceled out by the great, 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 great grandparents I had that were slave owners. I don't know. And we haven't even had the discussion about the other ethnicities where slavery was around the world, but that's a whole nother conversation for another day, another rant. Yeah, I think you, I think you made the point I was, I was leading to is that these behaviors, they're not only increasing, they're leading to, they continue to lead that, to bad consequences for the rest of us, like Wolf Rider Beating was, kids up on school buses? It's like Wolf Rider was saying, it's like an 80-20 rule. It's like the 20% are making it bad for the 80% of us who, who don't want to loot at Walmart. But we go into a store, especially if we're teenagers or, or in a group, and we're immediately treated as criminals as soon as we enter. And we can say that's racism, but from their point of view, they see these black group teenagers, these black groups of teens, they go into a store, um, they just take what they want and just walk out. Even in my neighborhood, which is uh, a mostly very low crime neighborhood, I'm starting to see these signs that no unaccompanied, unaccompanied minors allowed. And it's obvious why. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of uh, unintended consequences uh, to these, to these crimes, these mob scenes, it hurts people like us. It hurts people like your children, for example. It makes it harder for us to get jobs. It, and it, it makes it harder for our communities that live in, in, a, in an innocent environment that it, they don't have access to the supermarkets, the, the chain yeah. stores, the box stores that yeah. 
nicer neighborhoods have, so they have to pay more for their goods and goods and services. They have to travel farther. Yeah. When I lived in, in Newark, there were businesses that would not even deliver to yeah. our neighborhood because deliver to your neighborhood? Forget about it. No. Yeah, they no, would it, didn't make a delivery to say my father's business, for example. And while they're delivering, there would be people who would be robbing the truck. So they bring it in five cases or something, and they go back to their truck to get more, and they see there's no more because someone just looted the truck. And then after that, of course, it's harder to get people to want to do business with us. So it's just uh, it's a bad trend that seems to be increasing, and it's being met by politicians who want to defund the police. Yes. And that more and more by the Brandon Johnson, I believe, the Chicago yes. elect. And they try to set up a, an either-or either argument that um, if they – take money from the police and, and add to more social services, after school programs, et cetera, that it would lower crime. But it's, even if even if a massive influx of social spending would reduce crime, it doesn't necessarily mean that that, that money that you're using for social services has to come from the police department. And if you're concerned about crime, at the very minimum, you want to do both. You know, you want to yeah. have more police, plus you want to have more activities, job programs, uh, daycares, uh, et cetera. But that's not, that's never the way they frame it. They always say that it has to come from the police to these programs, and then you'll have a safer society, which is, which is obviously a false argument. Yeah. Well, that's it for another show. I am Marie, the birthday girl. <laughs> I'm DK. Wishing Marie not a, the birthday girl. <laughs> Wishing Marie a birth, happy birthday once again. Thank you. And so please do go to acons.substack.com. You'll find all of the links there. Uh, you'll find this podcast. Once it's edited, you'll find all kinds of good stuff there. That's another episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S. And also you can support our work at anchor.fm forward slash A-A-C-O-N-S forward slash support.